Well, let's turn together in the scriptures to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 25. We're going to read the whole chapter. Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn. A little one came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled up, pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was given was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom." that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. 
but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will rise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel... My thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we turn now to your scripture, we pray, Lord, that as we deal with these things that are difficult and mysterious we pray lord that you would help us to understand as you have given us this word for our instruction and for our training and for our teaching and so lord we pray that this morning as we give our attention to your word we pray that you would teach us that you would cause us to understand what it is you want us to understand from this chapter and lord may you enlarge our perspective and swell our hearts and cause us to leave here full with the glory of who you are and what you do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we embark on a new section in the book of Daniel, and some would call us mad for doing so, because we embark upon this section of Daniel that is known as the apocalyptic section of Daniel. Now you might, if you've been coming here week after week through this series in Daniel, you might say, wait, didn't, didn't you say, Eli, that chapter 2 to 7 was a section? And yes, that's true. Uh, chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7 is a distinct section in the book of Daniel because that section, as I've said, is written in Aramaic. And the author of Daniel use this style, which is not an uncommon style, of writing it in two different languages. 
And that enables him to sort of shape and structure the book as he'd like it to be structured. So yes, chapter 2 through 7 is written in Aramaic. And so this chapter 7 is written in Aramaic, and it does belong to the section before it. But it also belongs to the section that precedes this Aramaic section, or that's next in the book of Daniel, and that's the apocalyptic section. In a sense, chapter 7 is, is a transition chapter. It, there's an overlap of two sections. If you can imagine the apocalyptic and the histories, and they kind of overlap because of that Aramaic uh, language style that he's using. And what that does is it, it enables us to see that these two sections are connected, and it brings their lessons into one another. So what have been the lessons of the first section of Daniel that we've been looking at? Well, we've been seeing it repeated over and over and over again that God is sovereign and God is in control, right? And, and this is something that's just screaming to us throughout the first uh, six chapters and we're going to see throughout the rest of this book. God is in control. And God has a plan for this world. And kings and kingdoms arise because of the will of God and not because of happenstance. And kings and kingdoms fall not because of happenstance, but because of the will of God. That God is the one who establishes and tears down rulers, and he does it because he has a plan. We also saw the theme that God will rescue the righteous ones. God will save his people and deliver them from their persecutors. That's another uh, theme we've seen. And also, God will bring down the pride of man. God will punish the lofty ones of the earth. So all of those things that we've been seeing in the first six chapters of Daniel, we shouldn't forget them as we move into the apocalyptic section. We don't just turn all that off, and now the only thing we're concerned about is, you know, all the details of the apocalyptic section. Those, uh, those points and those themes are true also, in these sections. We should see them. But also we should bring the apocalyptic section into the first uh, section as well. The lessons learned there that God has a plan, that God, nothing is, is happenstance. He's determined these things to take place. And so we can think about that in the context, in the light of those points that we learned before. So this is a transition chapter. Now I'd like to preface are uh, going into this chapter and are going into this apocalyptic section by stating the obvious that there is a lot of disagreement in the Christian church about this section and about the apocalyptic section of Daniel, right? Uh, we're not entering into a section that all Christians basically agree on, right? So there's a lot of disagreement in the church. There really is a lot. I don't think there is a majority position. We're pretty much divided 50-50, and there's a whole bunch of other variant views as well. But I would like to say that what I will be sharing with us here at All Saints Church as we go on is what I believe to be the true biblical teaching of the apocalyptic sections. And I'm going to present my reasons for believing this. But I want to just make it clear that I'm not speaking for everyone. I'm not speaking for everyone in this church. I'm not speaking for everyone in the Christian church at large. I'm telling you what I believe is the biblical position. I won't be defending every position. And I just ask that you would hear, hear me out. And the Bible tells us to be Bereans, or it, tells us, it gives us the Bereans example in the book of Acts, that they listened to what the Apostle Paul had to say, and they didn't just 
believe everything he was telling them, they searched the scriptures to see if it was so. And that, the Bible says, they were noble for doing that. And so, be noble as we go through this new section here in Daniel. How do you be noble? Well, first of all, you be noble by not just believing everything that I say, but you, you, your mind is engaged. You're not just a little bird, the food's going in and you're just eating. Your mind is engaged, you're listening, you're, you're, you're trying to track with me and see if what I'm saying is true. That's one way of being noble. Another way of being noble is you don't shut your mind off, right? You don't just have your entrenched position and say, I can't learn anything here because I already know what the, the position is, right? So nobility requires you to hear this, the presentation out and to examine it to see whether it does agree with the scripture, whether your position is right. Or whether, yeah, whether you need to hold on to your current position or whether it needs to change. I'd also like to say another thing that might be obvious for you who've been coming to church regularly is that my sermons that I give are usually not standalone sermons. Um, they build on one another. And so not every sermon contains everything that there is to be said about a given chapter or a given text that we read. And I'm aware of that. And I put into the sermon as much as I, as I can in a short amount of time and what I deem absolutely necessary for the short amount of time that we have. But when I put a sermon together, I'm thinking of the next sermon, the next sermon after. So think of this as an ongoing thing that builds upon itself. Think of a sermon like a chapter in a book rather than an entire book. An entire book, you say, I've read it, I know everything that he has to say about that subject. A chapter, they relate to each other. And it's going to have to be like that as we go through, especially this apocalyptic section. There's so much to say. So keep in mind that these build on one another. Eschatology, the study of the end times, is very touchy. But perhaps it's not touchy because it's eschatology. Perhaps it's just touchy because we disagree on it. Perhaps it's disagreeing that's touchy, you know? And it's not necessarily the, the subject matter that's, that's touchy, but the fact that we disagree. And it, it uh, therefore calls for us to show grace for one another, right? If we feel touchy about it, if we get upset about it, it's a lack of, of, of seeing and showing grace for one another in our disagreements. And what are we united on as Christians, as we've been singing today? Are we, are we Christians and are we going to go to heaven to, together? And do we come to church together and sing together and stand together because we agree on all these details? No, but because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our understanding of his salvation and our trust in him and not in ourselves. Because we have the mind of Christ, the Bible says. It, it's interesting, the Bible says every Christian has the mind of Christ, but we disagree about a lot of things. And that is because the mind of Christ is understanding the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's understanding the free gift that God has given. It's something that all the world doesn't understand at all. The world is in darkness on that. But as Christians, we're in light because we know we are not saved by our works and our obedience to the law. We're not saved by our own righteousness. We're saved by the free gift of salvation in Christ who died for our sins and makes us righteous as a free gift through faith. If you don't understand that, you're not a Christian. If you do understand that and disagree with me, I'll see you in heaven. Disagree with me on eschatology. I'll see you in heaven. Let's remember where our unity lies. So with that, I'd like to begin our 
embarking on this apocalyptic section, and I'd like to remind us about the apocalyptic style, and I've mentioned this several times already, but just a, just a fresh reminder, the apocalyptic style um, is a style that you can see used in the Bible. You can, it's, a, it's a unique style. You can see it in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, Zechariah, and even in the book of Genesis and some other places. And the important points of apocalyptic style to remember is this. Apocalyptic style is not poetry. It's very important that we don't just look at a book like Revelation or a book like Daniel and say, it's all just poetic. It's just poetic. And, and sometimes people say that and they explain away what is being said by saying it's just poetic. He's using a lot of fancy words just to communicate some big ideas. And that's not what apocalyptic style or genre is about. It's not poetry at all. Now, poetry can be in it. In fact, poetry is in this chapter that we read. Some of your translations might even indicate that. Do you notice that verse 9 and 10 and 13 and 14, maybe in your translation, is sort of written differently? The translators are pointing out that that is poetry in Hebrew. And the other verses are prose, not poetry. So there's poetry in this apocalyptic style, but it isn't poetic itself. The apocalyptic style is symbolic. And the author uses, well, in this case, the visions are showing things, which he's writing down. And what he sees, they are symbols of, of real concrete things. So it's not just poetic words. He's describing beasts here. They stand for something very specific and concrete that you can actually wrap your hands around. So keep that in mind that we're going through this. We're talking about symbols that stand for very concrete and real things. And then the last thing to keep in mind is that nothing in, in the apocalyptic style is contingent. What I mean by that, it's not this will happen if, but what we see in the apocalyptic, what is revealed in the apocalypse is, is what is determined and what will take place. No if, ands, or buts about it, okay? So as you're reading this, this is what's going to happen. It's not, this will happen if you don't repent or something, okay? And then we repent and, okay, forget this chapter. This is what is determined by the Lord. Daniel is not the first apocalypse, as I've said. Uh, you'll remember Joseph's uh, dream, or his dreams in the book of Genesis of the sh the um, the bales of uh, wheat, is it, that's bowing down to him? That's apocalyptic in its style. W those are concrete things, right? That represents all of his brothers bowing down to him. That was determined to happen. What happened? It took place, didn't it? It, it wasn't contingent at all. And at one point, Joseph, even though no one thought it could possibly happen, everyone laughed at him, he stood there as the chief, one of the chiefs in Egypt, and his brothers were bowing down to him. Amazing. So it took place. Or remember the, the dreams of the baker and of the uh, wine taster in the prison? I, I had this dream and I had this bread on my head and the birds came and plucked the bread off of my head. And what is that supposed to mean? He said, well, in three days your head's going to roll. You know, that's what it means. And it happened. It was, it was not contingent. He didn't say, now repent and it will change. No, it's just, you're, you're dead. So the apocalyptic style is something God has used for a very long time. The apocalyptic style is not meant to be hopelessly undecipherable. 
these chapters were not given to us by God for us to just say, it's hopelessly undecipherable. There's just no way of us knowing what this is about. There is no doubt that it's mysterious. We don't want to forget that. There is no doubt that it's complex. That's true. But since it's mysterious and complex, that should make us give all the more care to understand it, not to just say it's hopelessly undecipherable. One thing we can use in interpreting these apocalypses is clear teachings in the Bible about the same events. Uh, the kingdom of God coming, the end of time, the coming of the Lord, Jesus. We can use the clear teachings to interpret the unclear. Uh, because there's lots of places in the Bible that's not in the apocalyptic style that talk about the same events, that talk about the persecution of the saints that'll take place. And so we can go to those places. For example, the Olivet Discourse. You'll remember uh, when we were going through the book of Matthew, chapter 24 and chapter 25 is Jesus' teaching on, these, on, the, on the eschatology or the end times. And there's a lot of parallels here. And so Jesus wasn't speaking in any apocalyptic style. So we can go to him and we can gather from him details. And that will help us interpret these apocalypses. Because these chapters have obvious parallels with what Jesus taught, Paul taught, what John taught, what the prophets of the Old Testament taught. And any interpretation of Daniel or Revelation or these apocalypses must synthesize with all the things that the prophets and Jesus and Paul also taught. Um, and that's extremely important that we don't interpret these things in isolation. We don't just go to Daniel 7, read it, come up with an interpretation, and, and don't seek to see what other, everyone else has to say and synthesize it. That's one of the great problems in, in people interpreting the Bible, is they don't synthesize. They don't go outside and try to see what light can be shed upon this, or making sure my interpretation is consistent with what, else, what also is taught. And not just in details of chronology and such, but also our interpretation must synthesize and agree with the gospel. If you have an eschatological point of view that contradicts the gospel of grace, if you have an eschatological point of view that denies righteousness coming through faith and it suggests that salvation comes in some other way, then you've got a problem. As we've said, the, the gospel is the main thing, and the, the scriptures is truly about Jesus Christ in him crucified, but yet not in any artificial kind of way. We don't approach scripture and sort of shove a square into a circle hole. We don't just take Christ crucified and say, he must be in this verse, and he must be in that verse, and he must be in this verse, and try to just insert it artificially into every verse, every word, every phrase that we read. That would not be right. Because the truth is, is that not every word, every phrase, every scripture is directly talking about Christ crucified. Um, I would argue that every verse in the Bible is indirectly talking about Christ crucified. It's all moving there. It's all going there. It's all pointing there. But it's not necessarily directly talking about it. The author, when he wrote that, wasn't thinking Jesus Christ and him crucified. In chapter 7 of Daniel, I believe this is ultimately about Christ crucified, but I don't think I can find one verse in this that is directly referring to Jesus Christ and him crucified, but his fragrance is everywhere, as we will see. hope that makes sense. We don't want to be artificial about it. 
but realize that the, the essence of this chapter is pointing to Christ. This is how we'll proceed. We're going to take two Sunday mornings to deal with Daniel chapter 7. And this morning we're going to deal with more of the, uh, the technical work of this chapter because there's a lot of it. We're going to look at the details of the chapter and look at the two main interpretive issues in this chapter 7. And next week we're going to step back after we've kind of surveyed the details and the interpretive issues of the chapter. And we'll, next week we're going to reflect on this chapter in its ultimate meaning and how it ultimately points to Christ. But today, the details. So it's going to require us as we go, it's going to require you, all of us, to put on our thinking caps here because, as you can see, this is kind of a thick chapter, isn't it? Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and vision in his mind as he lay on his bed. So, the setting here is the first year of Belshazzar. And again, as, though this is Aramaic and part of that Aramaic section, we're really stepping back in time now, aren't we? Because the previous chapter, uh, it wasn't about, Belshazzar was dead. Darius the Mede was in control of Babylon. And so it's clear that in Daniel 7, we're now stepping back. The chronology that has been going smoothly from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6 has stopped. And now we're stepping back and starting a new chronology. And as we go on from 7 to 12, that is also in chronological order as we're going to see. So we're starting a new chronology, beginning a new section. The first year of Belshazzar is about 14 years before Belshazzar died, 14 years before Babylon was destroyed. And as we see, this time it's not Nebuchadnezzar who's having a dream and calling Daniel in, we're calling all his magicians, and they're all failing to understand it, and then Daniel gives the interpretation. This time it's Daniel who has the dream, and he's failing to understand it, and he asks for the interpretation. He writes it down, it says in verse 1, and so we have it today. Look at verse 2 and 3. What does Daniel see in this dream? A lot of wind and a lot of waves, right? A lot of turbulence. Now imagine a sea. Now seas are pretty rough places usually, especially when you get out there on the high seas, right? And imagine a sea where the wind is blowing from every direction, the four winds. This is the four, uh, uh, an expression that refers to every direction, north, south, east, and west. Imagine the chaos of this sea, okay? He's looking at a sea and the wind is just hitting the sea from every direction and the waves don't know which direction to go and it's just tumultuous, and a turbulent scene. And out of this turbulence comes four beasts. Four pretty frightening beasts. Now what does this mean? Now the, the, the meaning of this is actually easy for us to see because the angel gives the meaning explicitly. Now look at verse uh, 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings, and we'll also see as we go on in the chapter that the king and the kingdom are one. So don't just think of these as individuals, but as kingdoms as well. Who will arise from what? So what's the sea represent? What's the tumultuous sea represent? The earth. So the Bible is telling us, you know what the earth is like? It's this tumultuous, raging sea. 
that is unsettled and doesn't know which way it's going. It's just craziness, dangerous, raging. One scholar, S.R. Driver, says, this is the agitated world of the nations, and such is the world, isn't it? Such is the world. And yet, it's interesting that the winds are called the four winds of heaven. And what's interesting about this is that the four winds of heaven seem to point in the direction that these winds aren't just happenstance, but they actually are the winds of God, because they're the winds of heaven. And it's interesting, in Jeremiah 49, 36, the same expression, the winds of heaven, are uh, said that God uses them, that God actually sends forth the winds of heaven and does what he does. And so what we see is that even though there's all this chaos and it seems to be total happenstance, God is actually in control of that madness. Isn't that amazing? God is actually the one who causes the madness. The four winds of heaven is part of his will. He allows men to go nuts and do what they do. And everything seems to be happenstance, but it actually isn't. I think this is a very, very important point. How many of you feel like life can just seem like it's happenstance, like God is not in control? It does seem that way. How many of you feel like sometimes your own life is like a raging sea and you don't know what's going on? Just things hit you from left, right. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of order. It can seem like that, but what does the Bible say? Does that, just because it seems like it's disordered, does that mean that it is disordered? Does that mean that God isn't in control? No. God is the Lord of that raging sea. The Bible even tells us that God is the one who causes the seas to rage, right? He's the one who brings up the wind and brings up the waves and causes these things for his purpose, and he silences them at his will. This is a picture of the sovereignty of God. The great uh, Puritan theologian John Owen, when he was commenting on this Daniel 7 here, this, this, this particular verse, says this, Now from these circumstances, tossed with the winds of commotion, seditions, oppressions, passions, do flow the governments of the world. The Spirit of God moving upon the face of those waters, get this, to bring forth those forms and frames of rule which he will make use of. So here, Owen is saying, all this madness, yeah, that's actually the the work of the sovereign God to bring forth the rules that he will make use of. Even evil rules, God will make use of them as well. Joyce Baldwin tells us this, once convinced of the truth of this chapter, of the truth this chapter is proclaiming, the reader is in possession of the key to history. The international scene is not, after all, out of hand, for it is in God's hand, and individual lives find their meaning in relation to his kingdom. You want, you've got the key to history. You've got the key to peace in the midst of the tumultuous world when you understand this lesson that God is in control. Amen. Amen. Now, there are two main interpretive issues in this chapter, and one is certainly more foreboding than the other one. The first one is the identity and the arrangement of the beasts that come out of the sea. The second one, which is the more foreboding one, is the issue of the time and the nature 
of the coup d'etat. That's a French term, probably you all have heard of, which means blow to the state, coup d'etat. The time and the nature of the blow to the state, because this chapter doesn't just show for kingdoms coming up out of the earth. This chapter also shows us a coup d'etat, a blow to the state in which one rule is replaced by another rule. And that blow to the state, that coup d'etat, isn't man against man here. It's God delivering a blow to this kingdom, this fourth kingdom, this kingdom of men. And he's replacing that rule with the rule of the Son of Man and the saints of God. This is a coup d'etat. And so the big question is, what is the time and the nature of this coup? So we're going to look at those two this morning, and we're first going to look at the identity and the arrangement of the beasts. This arrangement of the beasts affects their identity. Consider for a moment, is the, are the beasts consecutive or are they concurrent? Are they successive or are they contemporary? Are there four beasts at the same time or are there four beasts one after another after another? And certainly if they're concurrent or if they are contemporaneous, that will change how we identify them, won't it? And if they're consecutive, that'll change how we identify them. Now, most scholars, most conservative uh, Bible scholars, in fact, the almost unanimous opinion of the Bible scholars is that the four beasts are consecutive. That is, they're not contemporaneous, but they rise one after another. And here are the two reasons that, and I agree with this, that these four beasts are consecutive. And here are two reasons why. First of all, there's a clear relationship between this chapter and chapter 2. And that these two apocalyptic visions, the one Nebuchadnezzar having, the one Daniel is having, are really talking about the same thing. There's too many details and too, too many striking similarities to dismiss that. Consider for a moment that both of these dreams, the dream in chapter 2 of the metal statue and the dream in chapter 4 of the four beasts, each feature four kingdoms. Each feature these kingdoms losing their dominion and each feature as the consummation of the dream, the establishment of the kingdom of God. That's a striking similarity. Four kingdoms, their dominion will be taken away and the kingdom of God will be set up after them. Both of those dreams focus on the fourth kingdom. There's an emphasis in chapter 2 on the legs and the feet. Just as there's an emphasis here in chapter 7 on this fourth strange beast that comes out of the sea. Both fourth kingdoms are said to be described with iron. You'll see that the iron teeth in chapter 7 and the iron legs in chapter 2. And they're both described as destructive and conquering and trampling and that really nothing can stand against them on earth. Some scholars see a descent in quality in chapter 7, just like we saw a descent in quality in chapter 2, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron and the clay. In chapter 7, we see a lion, we see a bear, we see a leopard. I don't know if this is true, if there's a descent in quality. Some scholars say there might be. But certainly in both visions, there's a coup d'etat that strikes when, who does this coup d'etat hit? When does it hit? It hits the fourth. The coup, the coup in chapter 2 hits the fourth kingdom in the feet. And the coup in chapter 7 also hits the fourth beast. 
and he's given to the flames. In chapter 7, as we study the details of these beasts, it seems like it is probable that we can make an identification with Babylon, the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks, just like we did in chapter 2. There is no con convincing reason to think that they aren't the same. When you, when you look at chapter 2 and chapter 7, uh, there isn't really any convincing reason to say they're, they're talking about different things. And lastly, the Aramaic chiasm that we've talked about really point to them being together in that the Aramaic section begins with this Nebuchadnezzar's dream and ends with Daniel's dream of the four beasts. Seems like there's a relationship between the two. So all in all, it seems like it is clear that chapter 2 and chapter 7 are the same, and in chapter 2, the kingdoms are consecutive. So therefore, in chapter 7, we ought to take them as consecutive as well. The other reason why we should take them as consecutive is it gives us that impression in the, de in the description of them themselves. Look at verse uh, 4 of chapter 7. Daniel says, the first was like a lion. In verse 5, Daniel says, the second was like a beast. In verse 6, he says, I kept looking, and another one like a lion, uh, like a leopard, came up after this in verse 6. And then in verse 7, he says, after this, I kept looking. So the impression you receive from the chapter also uh, gives us the sense of consecutiveness. Some might argue, well, why would God give two of the same visions? Well, I mean, why would he say the same thing twice? Isn't that redundant? But we would remind someone who objects like that that God often does that, right? God often gives uh, two of the same dreams. Look at Joseph. He had two very similar dreams of his, of his brothers bowing down to him, of the, the bales of wheat and also the sun, moon, and the stars. And look at Pharaoh, who had the dream of the famine that was coming. He had a, with the dream of the cows and then the dream of the stocks, right? So it's often that God does that. And while they are similar, they're also different. And this is true for uh, all the different teachings in the Bible on the, on the same events of the end, that God gives different visions or different teachings on those things, and, there's, and he does it to add new details as well as emphasize the truth and what he, the truth of his determining these things. But he adds new details. So for example, chapter 2 focuses on the kingdoms themselves, right? There's no mention of persecution of any saints in chapter 2. Chapter 2, it's just Babylon, gold, silver, bronze, feet, stone. But in chapter 7, we have all these new details of the, the persecution of the saints. It tells us that this fourth kingdom is going to trample down and, and wage war on the saints and overpower them. So here's an additional detail that God is giving. Chapter 7 shows us the suffering and the triumphs of God's people. Chapter 7 introduces to us a strange persecutor, this little horn. Chapter 7 gives us a behind-the-scenes look into heaven that chapter 2 didn't. Chapter 7 shows us this courtroom in heaven being set all the while that the little horn is boasting and bragging and, and doing his thing. Chapter 7 introduces to us the figure of the Son of Man. Chapter 2, it's interesting that it was a dream that was given to a Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar. Not a very theological person. Didn't have that rich Old Testament background, all those rich Old Testament themes. And it was a vision that he could understand Four kingdoms, okay, wow, and they're brilliant, and they're powerful, and they're strong. Hey, they get overthrown by this stone. But in 
Chapter 7, this is given to Daniel, a man who has the scriptures and the law of Moses, and this chapter is just filled with theology, filled with themes, filled with uh, allusions to the Old Testament, as we're going to see. And so in chapter 7, we get the true character and nature of those kingdoms revealed, you see. So we see a lot more here. Now let's look at, chap- at uh, verse 4 to 6. We can identify these animals, these symbols, uh, not by the animals per se. This is important that really the lion and the bear and the leopard could really stand for any kingdom. Uh, it's, you, you couldn't just say there was a lion. Ah, oh, that's Babylon. It could be Persia. It could be, it, you know, a lion is a regal animal. It's a powerful animal. And most of those kingdoms could be described by a lion. So it's not by the lion per se, on, in and of itself, that we identify what they're referring to, but by their anomalies. Because these aren't normal animals, are they? These are weird animals. This is a lion with wings that loses its wings, stands up on its feet, walks around, starts talking like a man, right? <laughs> Strange. <laughs> so it's by their anomalies that we get clues as to who they are. Another thing I'll point out, because some interpreters do this and we should not do this, we shouldn't look at these animals and then look, go to the flags of the nations or to national animals and try to understand, you know, this is referring to this nation because this nation has the flag that has a lion on it. Or this nation's national animal is a bear, you know. Um, and people do that. Right? They think, you know, the Russia's national animal is a bear. That's true. And so they think, well, maybe the second beast is the Russia. But the thing is, is that these nations aren't the only nations with these animals on their flags and as these national animals. There has to be more to it than that. And we also have to take the anomalies into account and also what the details are given about these creatures. Do they fit Russia or do they fit someone else? So there's a word of caution on that kind of comparison. Babylon, most scholars agree, is the lion and the the, the eagle lion, or what we would call a griffin. And the reason most scholars believe Babylon is the lion is, first of all, as I've mentioned, the similarities here between chapter 7 and chapter 2, where Babylon is the first kingdom. So therefore, we would expect the first beast to be Babylon. But we also have other clues than that. The book of Jeremiah repeatedly refers to Babylon as a lion and as an eagle. It's interesting. If you go to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's talking about Babylon's going to come and get you. And he's going to get you like a lion. And he's going to be fast like an eagle. And so someone who is uh, aware of the Old Testament might think of that and say, hmm, okay, Jeremiah was talking about that when he was talking about Babylon. But of special interest, the, the wings are plucked. The lion stands upright and the human mind is given to it. Now there's another big debate here, and it's not that serious, but the big debate is, is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's funny we don't know. <laughs> and I'll, I'll admit I don't really know either. Is this a good thing that a lion with the wings has the wings plucked and he stands up and he's now a man? Is that a good thing? The people who argue that's a good thing say, well, of course. I mean, having the mind of a man is certainly better than having, a, you know, being an animal. It's, it's better to be a man than a lion. 
And other people will argue, well, no, I think it's actually better to be a lion because humans are kind of wimpy and puny. And if, if lion and human were to go at it head to head, you'd want to be a lion, right? You'd want to be a lion with wings. <laughs> so <laughs> so this, is clearly a, this is clearly a degradation here. <laughs> you know, they, they don't think too highly of human beings here. And like I said, I, I don't really know if it's positive or negative here because honestly, it could, Bab Babylon could fit both. For example, for those who see it as a positive thing, they actually see here an allusion to Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, the return of his sanity. Uh, he, he, who's the lion and the eagle, is Babylon. Uh, let's think of Nebuchadnezzar here, who, who comes off of four, four feet, his four feet and stands up and gets his mind again. It does seem like there might be some allusions to that in chapter 4. If that's the case, I would think that there's probably more of an allusion, maybe not so much to just him re receiving his sanity, but to him being converted. Not just having a mind back, but him actually now recognizing God's rule. And this is a very positive thing, that all of a sudden he's, he's, he's thinking clearly again and acknowledging that God is the one who rules in heaven. And, and probably that, that may have really changed Babylon's characteristics after Nebuchadnezzar had that change. Maybe Babylon became a, a more human-like place after that. We don't know. So some people see it as positive, and it seems like it could fit. Other people see it as negative. They say, no, I mean, it's just a symbol that Babylon got worse. It got weaker. It got weaker. That might not be as strong because maybe, you, you know, God could have turned this griffin into a little, you know, koala bear or something. I don't know. He could have, maybe not a human, if you just wanted, if you just wanted to indicate weakness. But those say, well, Babylon did get weaker after Nebuchadnezzar died, and and as his, when his family, uh, you know, the, the, um, there was a re revolution in that kingdom and some guys killed the family and took over and then it just went downhill from there. So some people think that it's negative. Both would probably fit. Whichever way you look at it, it seems probable that Babylon is indeed being spoken of. The second beast. Here we have a lopsided bear. A lopsided bear. So... It says that uh, a bear comes out of the water, but what's weird about it is it's got one side that's higher than the other. It's a lopsided bear. And it has three ribs in its mouth. It, its teeth are closed down on three ribs. Now, most scholars, again, believe this is the Medes and the Persians, and I would agree with them. So how would we think it's the Medes and the Persians? Well, first of all, of course, the bear symbolizes power. It could refer to any kingdom. But the lopsidedness of the bear seems to point to the fact that the Medes and the Persians' kingdom was one that was divided between two. It was really a, a confederation of two kingdoms, and one was more powerful than the other. The, the Persians, if you remember, were, were the dominant force over the Medes. And if you turn to the next chapter with me, chapter 8, verse 3, and what's interesting is in chapter 8, the angel explicitly says that we are talking about the Medes and the Persians. And look at chapter 8, verse 3. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. So here's an odd-looking thing. Here's the anomaly. It has two horns, one's longer than the other. And look over at verse 20. The ram, which you saw with the two horns, represents the kings of the media, 
of Media and of Persia. So in chapter 8, we have a similar creature with kind of a lopsided feature that represents the Medes and the Persians, the Persians, of course, being the dominant ones. So it seems likely that uh, the bear also represents the Medes and the Persians. The ribs in the mouth, some scholars think this represents the three conquests that the Persians engaged in. Others think it's just symbolizing prey that they ate and a lot of it. And the command is given to the bear in light of the ribs being there. And it says, uh, arise, devour much meat. So the ribs and the command seem to go together there. John Golden Gay says this, the greedy expansionism of nations can evidently have a place within the purposes of God. Interesting, huh? So when you think of kingdoms, devouring much meat, conquering, being imperialistic, um, that's, we're not making a comment whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but Golden Gate is just saying, don't think that it's out of the control of God. That even that has its ground in his purposes for some reason. For some reason, he allows it and even commands in the spirit this bear to do that. Jerome, actually, in the 4th century, thought that the ribs and devour much meat represents the, in, the incident in Esther, when in the Persian kingdom, uh, there was a, a moment there where the Persians were going to kill all the Jews. Remember that? They were going to wipe out all the Jews. That could be true. But what it probably refers to here is simply the, the sheer size of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire took world empires to a whole new level, to a whole new scale. Assyria and Babylon were big, but they weren't that big. They were kind of local. But then when you look at a map that shows the Persian Empire, it's spanning from India all the way to Greece. I mean, it's enormous. It's never had a kingdom been that big. Of course, after that, then Alexander's was big and the Romans were big. But perhaps this signifies the Persian Empire's sheer size, devour much meat. Now it's time for this to get big. The third beast. Most scholars agree it is Greece. Symbolized here as a polycephalous leopard with wings. Polycephalous means many heads with wings. And again, the beast is introduced with the phrase after this, which in indicates consecutiveness. The leopard is known for its speed. It's certainly not as fast as the cheetah, but it is still extremely fast. And the wings also would represent speed as well. Every time wings are mentioned, it seems to be uh, a powerful instrument of travel. And so here you have what we're impressed with with this beast is swiftness. And this certainly seems to indicate the kingdom of the Greeks, which, of course, if we follow the order of chapter 2, we've, uh, we've got Greek following the Persians, if we follow history, but there is no doubt that the Greeks had a meteoric rise to power, right? Ten short years, and this little 30-year-old guy named Alexander was the ruler of the, basically the whole known world at that time. And he conquered the Persians in that short of time. It was, imagine just traveling those days was a long time, let alone conquering, right? <laughs> I mean, traveling from Greece to India has probably take many years, but they conquered the whole way through. And so it does seem to have this leopard-like swiftness 
that would be uh, referring to the Greeks. But notice in verse 7, or sorry, verse 6, that it's very clear that dominion was given to it. And once again, we see the sovereignty of God. This leper didn't take over because of its own strength and its own power, but because dominion. Alexander only conquered that swiftly because of God. And that's it. If God didn't want it to happen, Alexander would have died walking out of his front door. Dominion was given to him. What do the four heads represent? The number four of the wings? This seems to be very clearly representing the fact that that the Greek empire was very quickly divided into four. If you are understanding, know know history. And if you turn again to chapter 8, look at chapter 8. And uh, we have in chapter 8 an explicit reference to Greece, and we have similar details here. Chapter 8, verse 8. The male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven in all directions. And look at verse 21 and 22. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, as we're going to see that's Alexander the Great. 22. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from this nation although not with his power. So in the next chapter, we have, again, four in the kingdom of Greece, which seems to be indicated in chapter seven. Now we move to the strange fourth animal in seven and eight of uh, chapter seven, verse seven and eight. This fourth beast is the focus of this chapter. Most time is given to it. Daniel is mostly interested in this fourth beast when he asks the angel. Really, the other three served only, only seem to serve as a context for this fourth one. Um, there's more to them than that, undoubtedly. Um, but they really seem to serve as the context that help us locate this fourth beast. The fourth beast is not described. What animal is it like? Elephant? Is it like a you know, snake? What is it? Dragon? We don't know. This gives us a scarier impression and a more mysterious impression. Now, if we were to follow history, what would come after the Greek kingdom? We would be face-to-face with the mighty empire of the Romans. This beast, not only does the dream focus on the fourth beast, but it fo- has a focus within a focus. And the focus within the focus is on these ten horns, which in, uh, biblic- in the Bible, horns uh, symbolize power or rule. And this fourth beast, there's a focus on the ten horns that it has. And not only does it have ten horns, but then after these ten horns are you know, seen, another little horn rises up among these ten horns and uproots three of the horns. There's a focus in this fourth kingdom. And not only does this little horn rise up among the ten horns and uproot three of the horns, this little horn has eyes, and this little horn has a mouth, big mouth, boasting big things, as we're going to see, blasphemies against God. Who is this? Because this is clearly the focus here. The microscope is zeroing in on this little horn. Up to verse 8, we have prose. Starting in verse 9, we have, in verse 10, 
we have poetry. And a sharp contrast between what's going on with these beasts and this scene in heaven. First of all, the, po the poetry itself gives us the impression of order. It's a very common style of writing that if you really want to emphasize order and stability and security and, and um, well, I can't think of a better word than order, in, co in contrast to chaos, then you use this style of prose and poetry. But even the content itself, the raging seas, the raging beasts, the blasphemous little horn, and then all of a sudden in verse 9, it's almost like everything is loud and chaotic and suddenly you're put into a very serene scene, aren't you? Suddenly you're given a vision of heaven. And what do we see here? It's a courtroom. We see thrones being set up. We see this ancient, this figure, the ancient of days, taking his seat. This is none other than God, referred to as the ancient of days only here in the Bible, communicating the fact that from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Communicating the fact that before anyone ever existed on this earth, God was, God is, God always shall be. God's been around a lot longer than all of us. God's seen everything that has to be seen. God is the ancient of days who has white hair, it says here. This is symbolic. This is his wisdom. This is his purity. This is his majesty. We should be impressed by this scene. It's easy to read it and just kind of flip over it. We should all do it. When we do our own reads, let's just pause and meditate on this. This is God, the ancient of days. His white clothes, it says. We see white clothes when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, this dirty, you know, first century traveling preacher, all of a sudden before the eyes of Peter, James, and John, looked like this, right? Look like an angel, because angels look like this kind of too. Suddenly his clothes, it says, were whiter than you could white them. You, you couldn't white them any whiter than this. There's no setting on your computer to make it whiter. <laughs> but it's whiter than the white setting on your computer. It's so white, it's like light, but it's brighter than any light we've ever seen. Imagine that even the purity and the whiteness and the brightness that we are used to doesn't even compare to the purity and the brightness and the whiteness that actually exists in God. I mean, if you think that you've figured it out because you've seen purity or something on this earth, you haven't. You don't even know what purity is. You don't even know what white is. It's amazing, the difference here. Think of his purity. And his, he wraps himself in light, unapproachable light. We can't even approach him. It's so bright. Think of his awesomeness that we will see one day. Ancient thrones often had wheels, interestingly enough. It wasn't just God's throne that had wheels. Uh, they would have people that would kind of carry them around so they didn't have to walk anywhere, and it would move their throne wherever they had to go, so they didn't have to get up off the throne when they wanted to go somewhere. God's throne has wheels. This symbolizes mobility. This symbolizes the fact that God is present everywhere, that God's judgment is present everywhere. God is quick. 
he can meet you anywhere in judgment. His throne is on fire. It doesn't burn him. But there he is. Probably the fire is emanating from him. The fire, of course, also symbolizes purity. But more than that, it symbolizes God's wrath. For this beast is given to the fire and he's burned and destroyed. God is a God of wrath. Amen? I think that's very clear in the Bible, isn't it? That God is a God of wrath. And one of the key features of God, whenever he's seen, is not only his majesty and his awesomeness and his purity, but in light of all that, his consuming wrath that destroys evil and unrighteousness and sin. And we must remember that. Look at this surging, flaming energy that's flowing from him. He is the source of this flaming river. In verse 10, a river of fire. Imagine, coming from him. A river, a surging, powerful river of wrath is flowing from him. Why are we not consumed by this? What's causing this river to not overflow and destroy this sinful world? but his patience through Jesus Christ. There would be no other reason. There's, there's no just reason why we shouldn't be destroyed, but for God's patience in Jesus Christ. And thousands and myriads, which just means innumerable people, are serving him. The idea here is court is now in session. Just move from one scene to the other. The chaos, the blasphemy, the order, the power, the majesty, the purity, the judgment, the wrath. Something's about to come down. And that's exactly what um, 11 and, verse 11 and 12 is all about. The sense here is that Daniel is looking at the judgment and he's looking at the blasphemy. And he's looking at the court. He's looking at the blasphemy. And so he's now anticipating this horn to be destroyed. That's what the sense is here in 11. Because then he says, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. So because of the boasting, he's looking. What's he looking at? I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So Daniel basically, because of the blasphemy and because of the court, I'm watching for the destruction and yep, there it happened. The beast was destroyed, the fourth beast, and the horn given to the flames. In verse 12, verse 12 tells us that the other kingdoms were actually preserved. Now, this can be interpreted two different ways. This can be interpreted in saying that when the fourth kingdom is destroyed, the other kingdoms are not. When the fourth kingdom is destroyed, the other kingdoms are not. But clearly they don't have any dominion. They just, their lives are preserved. The other way you can take this is that unlike the fourth kingdom's rule coming to an end in destruction, the other three kingdoms, when they stopped ruling, were not completely destroyed. So it's sort of a retrospective look and saying, as for the other ones, when they came to an end, uh, they weren't destroyed. They, they lost their dominion, but their lives were preserved. Either way of those is, is how you could take that. In verse 13 to 14, we come upon another poetic section. And we're introduced here to 
the figure of the Son of Man. And here the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. He comes to, it says he's presented before him in court. He comes to him and he is given the kingdom. He receives the kingdom. And it says in verse 14, how many people will serve him? How many people will serve him? How many nations? How many languages? This is, the, this is what is given to the, the Son of Man. Every language, English and the mall, Chinese, they are all given to serve the Son of Man. How long is this going to be? How long will he be served? How long is his dominion? Is it like the beast who's going to be destroyed or taken away? Never. It will go on forever. It will never be destroyed. It's interesting that even the Jewish interpreters of this chapter, they can't help escape admitting that this is clearly messianic. Anything that involves the giving of a kingdom to rule forever and ever, it has to do with the Messiah. And turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. And this is undoubtedly related. Psalm chapter 2. This, this psalm, it's not very familiar to us as Christians, but this might be one of the most familiar psalms to Jews. They really think this is an important one, and, or at least they're very familiar with this one. This is about God establishing the Messiah, his king. Remember when God promised to David a son who would reign forever on his throne? Psalm 2 is picking up on that and saying, this is like the coronation ceremony of when God fulfills that promise that he gave to David. And look at Psalm 2 in the light of chapter 7. Why are the nations in an uproar, like a sea, you could say? Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. It's like the, the little horn, isn't it? Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. Let's be done with this ancient of days. Let's be done with the rule of the son of David. Because it's not just let's throw off God, but let's throw off his anointed, the Messiah. Let's forget about that. He who sits in the heavens laughs. There's that contrast. All the boastful words. I'm going to bring you down better than I am God. I'm God himself. The thing is saying, and up in heaven, he's just laughing not only because he will be destroyed, and that very briefly, but because he doesn't even realize that he is simply a part of God's plan. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, uh, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Mount Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree he said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and how much of the earth as your possession? How much? The very end of the earth as your possession. He's speaking to the Messiah. What will he do in verse 9 with them? You shall break them with a rod of iron. What does that mean? You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. 
Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Because remember, they're wanting to cast off God and the Messiah. He's saying, that's not going to happen. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. I wonder if you perish in the way is like, uh, this might not be true, but on the way to judgment. Make, make amends with the Messiah before the judgment day, before it's too late. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So there is no doubt that this is messianic. Please turn back to Daniel 7. Look at verse 27. This is even stronger. Look how amazing verse 27 is. Then, at that time, then, what's going to happen? The sovereignty, the dominion, and what else? The greatness of how many kingdoms? How many kingdoms? The greatness of all of them under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Amazing. All the kingdoms of the world, all their power, all their authority, all their dominion, all their greatness will be given to... Now here's the interesting thing. The saints. Now, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? You're a saint, right? You're a believer. You're one of God's people. You're a holy one. Now, have you ever taken Daniel 7 and applied that to us? Is that warranted? Is that warranted to do according to Daniel 7? Now, it is. I think we as Christians, we're really good at saying this is given to Jesus, and it is. But we must point out that in this chapter, when the interpretation is given the saints of the Most High God is what he indicates that the kingdom will be given to. So I would say that the Messiah here is implicit rather than explicit. But what is explicit here is that the people of God receive the kingdom and that dominion. And of course the Messiah is there. It's through the Messiah that it's even going to happen, right? So it's implied that the Messiah comes and it's through him that that happens. But that is for us as well. Think about that for a moment. What an amazing thing that the Bible is saying here. The very ones who are persecuted, the very ones who are being overpowered, the very ones who are being trampled, it says, yeah, the table is going to turn, there's going to be a coup d'etat or a blow to the state, and there's the, the kingdom and the dominion will be replaced by the ones who were losing, who are being trampled, seemingly losing, who are being destroyed and the tables will be turned and it will be given to them. It kind of just blows our minds. It blows my mind. It's hard to even wrap my mind around that. I just don't feel like I'm the ruler kind of material, you know. But nonetheless, here it is. The kingdom is given to us. Now in verse 15 and 16, Daniel is certainly excited about this, but he's also distressed. The highlight here is that he's distressed, and we need to ask, why is he distressed? Daniel asks for the interpretation of this dream. And in verse 17 and 18, the angel gives him basically the barest of the bones interpretation you could imagine. He skips over the fourth beast and the ten horns and the little horn and the persecution. He just says, yeah, there'll be four kingdoms and then the kingdom will be given to the saints. And Daniel says, that's really exciting, but I'm really bothered about something. 
Why is Daniel distressed at this idea that the kingdom will be given to saints? He's not. He's distressed at this part that he saw, which he describes in verse 21 and 22. Because in verse 19, he says, okay, then I ask him, what about the fourth beast? What about the ten horns? What about the little horns? The little horn. And in verse 21 and 22, he, he goes back and he tells us something that he saw that he, he didn't at first mention. I was looking, or I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints. There's a brand new detail. And overpowering them. Now, is that unlimited, or is that a limited thing, according to these two verses? 21 and 22. Is it limited in time, or is it unlimited in time? It's limited. Because the next verse is probably one of the most important verses to note. Until... He was trampling and beating and overpowering and waging war on them until something happens. And he doesn't do that anymore. Until what? That scene that he saw, the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time, until the time, arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So here's the idea. This little horn is smashing and warring and waging war and beating and overpowering them until the time when the tables are turned and they get the kingdom and the beast is destroyed. There's a terminus. And so Daniel is troubled by this persecution because it's bigger than we can probably even wrap our minds around from just this passage. He wages war and overpowers them. That's a brief way of saying something really, really, really bad. And you know, Daniel, this isn't the first time that... uh, Trouble is coming for the saints, but the prophets, Jeremiah talks about that as well. A time of great tribulation that Jesus also talks about as well. But there's a terminus, and Daniel wants to understand. It's interesting that many people are content with the basics of eschatology and prophecy. There's four kingdoms, and there's going to be the kingdom of the saints. You know? That's it in a nutshell for most people, right? The kingdoms of man will do their thing and then the kingdom of God will, do, will come. And for many people, that's it. And that's true. But for Daniel, that wasn't enough. Not that that wasn't wonderful to him, but he's like, I want to understand the guts of this thing. I want to know why that's happening. I want to know what this means because it's important to me. Because my people are being trampled and destroyed. I want to know how long that's going to be. I want to know what that horn means. He wants to know the guts, the details. I think we should be concerned too with the same. Now the answer is given by the angel in verse 23. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns... Out of this kingdom, this fourth one, there are ten kings that will arise. So these horns represent kings. And look at the next detail, very important. Another horn will arise when? After them. So let's get it straight. There's fourth kingdom, ten horns that arise in it. And after those ten horns arise, then there's a little horn that arises. And what happens when he arises, three of those other kings are uprooted, which show us that those ten horns are contemporaneous. It's not consecutive. There's ten horns, one comes up after them, and three of those ten are torn down. 
So we see that these are contemporaneous. And then look at verse 25. This little horn will speak out against the Most High, and he will wear down the saints of the Most High, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And now look at this detail. And they, the saints, will be given into his hand. There's the sovereignty of God. Not a saint is touched. Not a hair on your head is harmed, except if it be by permission of the Lord. That's what Jesus says about the sparrows, evil horn's hand. For a time. And notice now that Daniel is given a specific amount of time. Now this is interesting because, first of all, he said it will be until the judgment comes and the tables are turned. And now he says it'll be this long. So all of a sudden we've got a picture here that the saints are given into the hands of the little horn for a certain amount of time. And after that amount of time, it's over. Judgment comes. Beasts destroyed. Saints get the kingdom. And the amount of time, of course, is a little cryptic here. For a time, times, and a half time. Now, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. And keep bearing with me. I know we just have a little bit more to cover here. But we really need to get this, these details <laughs> done for this sermon so we can move on next sermon. Daniel, or Revelation chapter 12. Now, the question is, what is the time, times, and a half time? And the first thing we need to know about it is that this is not the only place in the Bible. Daniel 7 is not the only place in the Bible that phrase is used. It's used elsewhere in Daniel, as we're going to see. Other, other visions are given that relate to this Daniel 7. We're going to see more details about this time. But even John, in his revelation, was given this figure as well. And the reason why we're going to Revelation 12 here is because John, in his revelation, helps us see how long this time is. And look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Verse 14 first. We'll look at verse 6 and verse 14. In verse 14, these are saying the same thing. In verse 14, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and a half time. Now, anyone reading that should think Daniel, Daniel 7. She was nourished for a time, times, and a half time from the presence of the serpent who here wants to destroy and kill. Look at verse 17, just a little aside. The dragon was enraged with the woman when he couldn't get her, and he goes off to make war. Now that sounds like Daniel, doesn't it? But now go back to verse 6. The woman is nourished in the wilderness for a time, times, and a half time. In verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for a time, times, and a half time. Now, how long is it there that she's nourished in the wilderness? It tells us how, how long. It says 1,260 days. That's how long this woman is in the wilderness. That is the meaning of a times, time, times, and half time. And most scholars get this. And they say, yeah, a time is one year. It's this cryptic apocalyptic language, but a time is one year, times is two year, a half a time is half a year, which is three and a half years precisely, which 
1,260 days is three and a half years precisely. That's not a coincidence. And elsewhere, other phrases are used to indicate that same time. It says 42 months. 42 months is how long? Exactly three and a half years. So it's almost like God wants to get it through our thick heads. I need three and a half years. <laughs> you know, I can't really say this any more clearly. <laughs> and what's beautiful about this three and a half year figure is that it's not arbitrary, it doesn't come out of the blue. But when we look at other prophecies and other details, this three and a half year figure fits perfectly with them, as we're going to see, especially when we get to Daniel's 70 weeks, where Daniel talks about a seven year week being cut in two. It's interesting how God reveals these things to us in a mystery. We need to put on our Sherlock Holmes hat sometimes, and I think he wants us to do that. Now let's just go back to Daniel 7. This brings us now to the final question, which we'll briefly touch. The final, the foreboding second interpretive issue. What is the time and the nature of the coup d'etat? When does the kingdom of God come and replace the fourth kingdom's rule? When does the kingdom of God get established so that all dominions and greatness of the kingdom is given to him? This is the controversial issue in the apocalypse of Daniel in chapter 7. This is like the Grand Canyon chasm in, church, in the church's eschatology. This is where the church is divided down the line on the timing and the nature of the coup. Here's how, here's the two views. With, with basically unanimous consent, conservative scholars of all sides believe that Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then finally the Romans are in view here. And that the fourth kingdom is Rome. And that this is consecutive. And this is a really easy step that, that many scholars make. They think, well, Daniel says there's Babylon, Medes and the Persians, Greeks, and then Rome. And then in Rome, the kingdom of set, is set up. So how obvious is it that this is referring to when Jesus came and died for our sins and rose from the dead in the time of the Romans, in the first century, and that's the establishment of the kingdom of God. And most scholars see it that way, or not most scholars see it that way, many scholars see it that way. It's just kind of obvious, right? It's, it's a nice and neat explanation. The time of the coup is the first century. The nature of the coup is spiritual because clearly in the first century the kingdoms of this world were not physically destroyed and God didn't Christ didn't come and physically reign in Jerusalem as the son of David so many scholars say it all points to the first century and it all points to a spiritual establishment of the kingdom and that's how we're supposed to understand it I admit it's nice it's neat it sounds spiritual. It is spiritual, actually. They make a good point. Something cataclysmic did happen in the first century, didn't it? That's what we all believe as Christians. It's not just people who believe that way. But here's what the other large group says. 
The other large group says, hold on a second. We agree with you 100%. Jesus came in the first century. We agree with you he died for our sins, rose from the dead, and that he ascended the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He has been presented before God. He's been given the dominion, all authority. We agree with you that Jesus is the king and he's the one who has all dominion and authority, and all, as he said. We believe with you that something very significant happened in the first century and that all who believe in him are in fact a part of the kingdom of God. We believe that. I belong to the kingdom of God. You belong to the kingdom of God if you're a Christian. So yeah, we, tr we trace, with, we track with you there. The, the, the spiritual nature of the kingdom and all that, we, we're, we're with you on that. Here's the difference. What about all the details that are given not merely here in Daniel 7, but are given in the other apocalyptic visions and as well as the non-apocalyptic teachings about the end times? We don't disagree with you in what you're saying, essentially. We just think that you're missing something more. That the Bible says more than that. That there really is a time when, as Daniel is telling us and Revelation is telling us and Jesus is telling us, that there's going to be a special time of intense persecution. And that there's going to be, as Paul tells us, a man of sin and that there's going to be a glorious coming of Christ, and at that point, there is the rocking of all the kingdoms and dominions and the greatnesses of this world, and they're all given ostensibly to Jesus. And that that isn't just some spiritual thing, that's a real, literal, physical coming and coup. And this group is convinced that to do justice to the scriptures and to do justice to the details that are given, you have to see that this coup d'etat, as Daniel's talking about, hasn't happened yet and that it's still future. They, we, this group says there's just no other way to reconcile these details. It's not doing any disservice to the gospel. It's it's not doing any disservice to the gospel in any way, it's, but on top of this, it's doing service to the text. And, and we see that other group who says it's all spiritual just kind of glossing over these details, kind of trying to just find things to make them fit, but it really doesn't fit. As many of those uh, spiritual, the ones who take it as the first century, that's when the coup take it, as they even themselves will admit many times, we don't know what this means. We don't know what the ten kings are, but we just believe it happened in the first century. We don't know who the little horn was, but maybe it was him, maybe it was him. We don't know. But it happened in the first century. It had to, they think. Roman Catholics and the, the earliest reformers, the Protestant reformers, held to the first group's view that the coup d'etat Daniel is describing was in the first century and it's a spiritual thing in nature. Roman Catholics believe that as well as the, the reformers in the very beginning who came out of the Roman Catholic Church, they carried on that, that belief. On the other hand, people from every denomination 
uh, believe, and I'm sure there's people from the Roman Catholic denomination too, that believe that the coup d'etat that Daniel is describing is still yet future, and it is not just this occult coming, which means a hidden spiritual thing, that it's actually a glorious coming where the kingdoms of the world are rocked. So there's a large group from every denomination to the believes this, and as one scholar says, this view, that it's still future, is as old as the church itself. And that is something important to notice, that of these two views, the one that says it's future and the one that says it's already happened, it's the future view that is as old as the church itself. That's older than even the, the view that places it in the first century. And here's a quote from Jerome, the fourth century scholar. And he wrote one of the most important commentaries on the book of Daniel. And it's a treasure because it comes from so early on in Christian history. It's actually one of the earliest commentaries we have of any books in the Bible from a Christian, like a real just verse by verse, almost like a modern commentary. And here's what he says, and he, and he wrote this before Augustine uh, was on the scene, and he wrote this before Augustine wrote his City of God, because it, it was Augustine who wrote his City of God that really changed the church's view from that future coup d'etat to the past coup d'etat. It was August, and this is before Augustine. Here's what Jerome says. We should therefore concur with the traditional interpretation of all the commentators of the Christian church, that at the end of the world, when the Roman Empire is to be destroyed, now he's writing this way past the first century, right? That at the end of the world, when the Roman Empire is to be destroyed, there shall be ten kings who will partition the Roman world among themselves. Then an insignificant eleventh king will arise, who will overwhelm three of the ten kings. Then after they have been slain, the seven other kings will bow their necks to the victor. This victor is the man of sin, the son of perdition, and that to such a degree that he dares to sit in the temple of God, making himself out to be God, a clear allusion to 2 Thessalonians. So Jerome here says, we should agree with all the Christian interpreters that this is future. This is going to happen, that we're expecting these events to take place. And then Augustine came along, and Augustine was a Platonist. That means that he believed that the physical world was something that was not good and that it's the spiritual world that's really the good thing. And so to think in terms of a physical kingdom is really carnal and we should get beyond that. And so Augustine's view was much more Greek than it was biblical. And I'd like to just point out in closing three things from the text itself that I believe help us see that this is a future thing and not a past thing. For there's too many details to talk about from all the visions to confirm this, and I'm just going to limit myself to Daniel chapter 7. I'd just like to point out three things. First of all, Daniel chapter 7. There, have been no ten, there were no ten horns and one little horn who persecuted the saints and whose kingdom came to an end and was destroyed, and the saints then were no longer persecuted by him in the first century. There was no ten horns, little horn that came up after them, who uprooted three, who persecuted the, the saints for 1,260 days, and then himself was destroyed, and then the coup took place. That's the first point. Second of all, all nations do not serve Christ at this time. 
And the Bible makes it very clear that all nations, all languages, all dominions, and even their greatness will be given to the saints. That has not happened yet. The kingdoms in Daniel are clearly literal ones. They are kingdoms that will arise in the earth. And so we are warranted to believe Christ will be as well. And lastly, third, a limited period of persecution precedes the kingdom of God. As it says there, he'll be given in to his hands for a time, times, and a half time. And there's lots of more details about that in Scripture, which you can't find in the first century. And I would say this, that Jesus' teaching on the, on the Olivet Discourse is simply this, isn't it? As we've gone through. Look for the abomination of desolation. And when you see that, there'll be a time of great tribulation, but it'll be short. And after that time, you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. It's quite simple. And I think that what Jesus taught there in the Olivet Discourse perfectly coincides here with Daniel's vision. So this view is I believe most natural, most ancient, and most free of difficulties, even though all of, these difficult, all of these views do have difficulties. So in all of this, brothers and sisters, let's show grace to one another if we disagree. Let's be Bereans and be noble, which means not shutting our minds off from learning, but also it means not just opening your brain and having someone shovel in what they want. Let's be Bereans about this. Let's be interested in it as Daniel is or was. And above all, let's preserve the unity that we have in Jesus Christ because it isn't by agreeing on all these things that we are one, but it's our faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures. And I do pray that you would help us to understand them. Lord, that you would... Uh, cause us all to change where we need to be changed and cause us to be interested where we need to be interested. May we, like Daniel, hide these things in our heart and may you bring your church to an understanding together. Thank you for the amazing hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>